Hello, everyone, and welcome to Powered by the People. Today, we have Nick Constantine, a Director of Solution Enablement here at Microsoft, but that's just the start of who he is. Nick is a lifesaver, an avid adventure sports participant, a veteran, and the chairman of the Seattle Mountain Rescue Board, among many other great things. Nick, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thanks, Donnie. Really excited to be here. Absolutely. Before we get into the adventures of your life and the things that I alluded to in the brief introduction, I'd like to start off with who is Nick? Can you take me through where and how you grew up, an origin story of sorts? Sure thing. Yeah, a little bit of a background, I guess, for myself. I grew up in a small coastal town in Connecticut on the shoreline near Mystic in New London and uh, spent most of my childhood there and traveling around the New England area. For university, I, I went up to a small school in upstate New York called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and studied civil engineering and uh, had a scholarship through the military that helped pay for, for a portion of that for me. And then that also guaranteed me a, a job when I graduated. So I went into the military and served four years with the United States Army. Wow. Well, thank you for that, Nick. I'd like to delve a little bit more into sort of your interest in mountaineering and all things mountains and where that started. So when when we first were chatting, something came up and it's often referred to as the Bible of mountaineering. The book Freedom of the Hills by the Mountaineers is something that I understood to be very impactful to you and specifically impactful towards your interest in mountaineering and adventure. So can you take us through sort of how you heard about the Freedom of the Hills and how it furthered that adventure itch? Yeah, I would say almost everybody who's a mountaineer or who spent some time in the mountains has heard of the Freedom of the Hills. It's a publication that's been in circulation for decades. And I think most people have some historical significance to why they got into mountaineering or how they got into the mountains, kind of that goes back to that document or that, that book. For me, it was my local library had a copy of it. And I was pretty interested in rock climbing. I think as most kids are, you're always looking to climb around on the jungle gym or or scamper up something or do whatever that gets you into a little bit of a, you know trouble where your parents are probably yelling at you <laughs> if they saw you. So when I found that book, I think I was looking for more information on just how to learn to rock climb and how to actually get into doing some of those activities um, you know, in the mountains or in the foothills and uh, found that book in the library. And I, I wouldn't say it changed my life, but I think when I do look back, it, it definitely is one of the, the pivotal points to kind of the setting me in a direction. Read that thing cover to cover, kind of started teaching myself with a few other friends how to rock climb, made a few mistakes here and there. Nobody got hurt, <laughs> thankfully. And yeah, it got me to a point where I, I felt pretty comfortable, you know, just doing the basics. So that, that mm -hmm. yeah, really the backstory there. And you said you, you got comfortable doing the basics, but when did you take this maybe from a climbing gym or from the easy routes onto maybe a more difficult or more treacherous path? <laughs> you know, I don't know where if it any ever has gotten treacherous, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think from there, I in college did a bit more climbing and kind of expanded beyond just kind of the standard top roping and maybe scrambling, mm -hmm. doing a little bit of lead climbing, and then moving to Colorado. That's where I was stationed with the military and spent a lot of time there in the mountains, just climbing some of the 14ers, which aren't you know terribly difficult. They're quite tall, but mostly walk ups in a lot of cases, and started ice climbing quite a bit there. I think that be 
became a, a hobby that I hadn't really known too much about or uh, an activity that I was really intrigued with. And there's, you know, some pretty good ice in a variety of places in Colorado and found that love of just getting up more on the vertical pillars of ice. And so a little bit of risk there, maybe started to increase the, the, the threshold a little bit. And then sure. I think also moving out to the Pacific Northwest and just seeing the like enormous volcanoes that we have here, seeing them with snow caps through most of the year and deciding that, you know, those are some of the, the big features that I wanted to try to stand on top of or at least get up on, whether it be skiing or climbing or just reaching the summit of those. So I, I think my love for some of those outdoor activities kind of continued to expand with wherever I was living. I've been pretty diligent in kind of choosing where and, you know, the places within the U.S. I wanted to try to spend some more time in. I have driven across the U.S. a few times, and I think I'm down to only maybe two states where I haven't visited. So oh, not wow. to say I can speak to every facet of the U.S., <laughs> but I would say right. that, I, you know, I have a love for the, the mountainous areas and the coastline growing up on the ocean. I think that was one of the things that in Colorado was a little bit lacking for me was just access to the ocean. My mother still lives in Colorado. She actually moved there a number of years ago. I think she realized how awesome that state was as well, coming out to visit me to go skiing. And she also ice climbs. So she would come out to go uh, hang out and was like, man, this place is amazing. So I do get back there quite a bit. But I think really the places I've lived really have centered around places I can enjoy the outdoors, get up into the mountains, uh, do a lot of the sports and activities, not only just on the weekends, but in a lot of cases after work. I really try pretty hard to, once I finish up everything at the office, uh, whether it be at home these days working remote or in mm -hmm. the actual office to you know grab my mountain bike or grab a paraglider or go for a trail run up in the mountains and, and just get out there and enjoy it. That's really great, Nick. And I loved the point of your mom moving to Colorado and she does some ice climbing as well. Is that something that you two sort of tackled together? Did you get her into that or how did that all start? I think, yeah, I got her into that. I probably drug her out one or two times when she was visiting or where, I can't remember exactly where her first time right. ice climbing was, but she got a little bit interested in it. And, and I think the bug was there, so to speak. And she then took a couple classes in Colorado. There's what's it called? Colorado Mountain College is a, a network that has some local colleges around the state. And one of them is pretty close to where she lives. And they offered some rock climbing classes as well as ice climbing mm -hmm. classes you'd think that okay you know this woman who hasn't really climbed or or done a ton is now in a class with all these 20 year olds that are you know likely going through college in some form or fashion but yeah she loved it she did a couple i think rock climbing classes that also got her out to moab for for some of the climbing which is pretty amazing and then in the ice climbing she did i think two classes with that that got her up to a level to where she was climbing out in uray in Colorado, which is a pretty well-known local area for just, uh, they, they actually, what they call farm the ice, they flow water over these giant canyon walls and then it freezes at night and, you know, hundreds of people are there on the weekends climbing all along miles of this canyon wall. So it's uh, got something for everybody and she usually hangs. We go out there, part of my mountain rescue team that I'm on now goes out once a year. We try to take a little pilgrimage trek out there. And it, the whole trip actually started because I was going with her one year and a bunch of my friends wanted to join. And so that's <laughs> been going on, I think, for at least four or five years now. 
Oh, wow. That's great. I love traditions like that. Staying a little bit in your time in Colorado, your time as a sapper or a combat engineer in the army, can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe how it pertains to the adventure spirit that you do have? That's a great question. I I came out of college, like I mentioned, with a degree in engineering, and I think the the military thought, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put this guy in the Corps of Engineers. Mm-hmm. Pretty common, you know, for a first assignment is to get in a combat engineer type role in that career path. And so I was a platoon leader for a, a group of combat engineers, kind of commonly referred to as sappers. So I had a sapper platoon, uh, and yeah, the folks in the the group were. Pretty amazing. I mean, very resilient individuals who had a lot of uh, ingenuity and could kind of make things happen in any regard. And that's really, I think, the core of what combat engineering is all about. It's really making sure that the infantry and and the combat arms can move forward uh, as mm-hmm. you know unimpeded. So if there's a bridge that's been blown up, we can repair that or put a new one in, and um, we can get our way through minefields if need be. And then there's also the opposite side of things where, you know, we can, you know, unfortunately destroy things and kind of reduce things that are in the path or create obstacles for others to have to deal with. And so there's there's the side of putting in minefields or blowing up bridges or um, doing things on the battlefield that would disrupt flow of troops. So obviously a lot of that comes with being a bit crafty and thinking outside the box and then just dealing with the elements of doing that job while also in a combat environment. I was pretty lucky in that I, I didn't have to deploy to any of the conflicts that have been going on over the past number of years. A number of the folks in my group did. You know, We did a lot of training in Colorado and uh, in some of the other surrounding states just to get people ready for you know the potential of deploying to combat. Yeah. And And so you mentioned things like maybe repairing a bridge or navigating a minefield. What sort of training exercises or expeditions, rather, would you lead your platoon on? Yeah, I guess as with a lot of things, there's a bit of the crawl, walk, run mentality. So you do a lot of individual training and just making sure that the individuals have the skill set and that those uh, individual skills are honed and that you're continuing to make sure that they're solidified within the group. Uh, And then progressing up towards where you're training as a group uh, or maybe as a platoon or or within the squads. And then all the way up to, you know, I was in a cavalry squadron, so we would train across that organization or even across the cavalry regiment that I was part of. So sometimes it would be in designated areas in Colorado where you have quite large landscapes to drive large vehicles around and and operate on the ground, get inserted to do different different tasks, like I was mentioning a few minutes ago. We'd also go out to what's called National Training Center, which is a large set of land that the military utilizes to train large organizations in combat. So then you can put the skills to the test at you know, the, the basic level all the way back down to the individual skills that you need to be doing, but really see that in effect all the way up to large scale operations that are taking place, whether they be using kind of like tanks on the ground or aircraft in the air. And you can coordinate all that together to, you know, make sure that the whole organization is trained top to bottom. That is really outstanding, Nick. I've always, as a as an engineer myself, had sort of a an interest in the Corps of Engineers and how it pertains to not only combat, but innovations and just I guess the spirit of of humanity. And so Thank you for for sharing those things. 
So Nick, one of the things from your time in Colorado was, as I understand, a stint that you had in the Seattle area. Was there anything about the topography or maybe the volcanoes that you mentioned earlier that you noticed on your first time visit there? Yeah, actually, the first time I came out was uh, when I was actually in college. So I had a, a summer training session that I had to do as a cadet, which was out in Fort Lewis in Washington. And so I packed my bags, jumped on a plane and flew out there. The first few days, it was sometimes how it is in Washington, a little bit cloudy. And I mm-hmm. didn't think too much of it and just kind of went about the days and did the activities that they had in store for us. And it probably was maybe, I don't know, day three at the latest, maybe day two at the earliest, where I woke up at maybe 4.30 or 5 in the morning, went outside to go do our physical training. And it was beautiful, clear day. And behind some of the trees and just behind the buildings, I could see this giant volcano sticking out of the landscape. And I don't think I ever realized growing up that we had volcanoes in the United States and that (laughs) that there were not even volcanoes, but ones that went up to 14,000 feet in, in the case of Mount Rainier. And so I was pretty in awe by that. And just seeing this giant white object, you know, jutting out of the landscape, I, I think my immediate thought was, I'm going to climb that at some point. And of course, I'd never even been to Washington before. I had no <laughs> idea that I would end up living there later on, but realized that that's something that's pretty amazing and that just loving to be on snow and kind of really enjoying being in the mountains, yeah, I realized like I'm going to climb that. And so Nick, you, you made that mental note, you took some preparation. When was that first climb, that first summit to Mount Rainier? Oh, I'm so bad with with dates and years. I don't know, probably for sure a number of years after I'd lived here. I, I think I did a few of the other volcanoes first. I, I maybe did a couple tries on Rainier. One time we were going up and a couple people had altitude you know, impact or altitude sickness that was coming on. And so we turned around and another time or two, I think we had some weather. I think in the end, I, I probably ended up climbing Baker and Adams Hood before getting Rainier ticked off. So yeah, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I'd say, I don't know, probably within the past seven, eight years. Oh, wow. Okay. So relatively recent in your climbing career then. Yeah, I'd say so. And so moving in, you mentioned something about altitude sickness and maybe some things that you've noticed with different groups of people that you've summited or climbed with. Was there anything that moved you to uh, mountain rescue or volunteering your time in that direction? I think there's maybe two or three, maybe four, I don't know how many reasons, but there's usually a (laughs) a handful of reasons why people end up getting involved. And, you know, some of them are quite positive in the sense that, you know, you go through, maybe take some training courses and go through like a dedicated curriculum. There's a a few mountaineering organizations that are club-based in the area, um, Mm -hmm. Mountaineers, Washington Alpine Club, Bow Alps, a few of those, and and some other people take private instruction and maybe get guided up, you know, initially onto some of these mountains and then, you know, decide to take more training through some of the guided companies. And maybe the natural progression is some people then decide like, hey, I'd, I'd like to give back and do more in the aspect of you know, helping people should they get hurt. Inevitably, if you're out in the mountains long enough, something does happen. And usually it's, you know, something you can figure out on your own and you've got the resources and skills and knowledge to get yourself out of. And I think people recognize that, but also recognize that sometimes things go in a way that maybe isn't positive. Sure. And most 
often people also know of people that have been hurt or maybe killed in the mountains. And so I think, you know, that's kind of one of the channels that gets people into mountain rescue or into search and rescue in general. I was a bit on the other side of things. Uh, I, you know, my story is a little bit less of a, a positive story. I had a number of friends who were actually on a flight. Uh, they'd gotten in a small aircraft that held, I don't know, about 15 people or so, and there was 10 of them on board. And they had gone to fly over to Idaho for a skydiving event. I myself had been a skydiver for a number of years. And yeah, on their return, they got into some pretty bad weather and uh, the aircraft got some icing on the wings and lost its ability to to maintain flight and then impacted the ground. It took a number of days. I think they realized, the authorities realized what had happened pretty early on. It wasn't really widely broadcast to everybody, but you know, I think there was a you know, people pretty much knew that the aircraft had crashed, but then there was a big uncertainty over if if anybody had survived or, you know, could they have skydived out or jumped out or what was the outcome? And it took a number of days to actually locate the aircraft. And, you know, myself, I wanted to volunteer to help or to get to be involved as in some way, just sitting around kind of helpless was really frustrating. It wasn't really possible. And I think that's when I started to understand what search and rescue and even mountain rescue is a bit about and and how, you know, I did some research after the fact and tried to figure out like, okay, how can I go get involved in one of these organizations that, you know, took the time to go and, and look for these folks because they're all volunteers that, you know, don't get paid to go do this. So how can, how can I, like, I likely have some skills, like what can I do to put those to use and go be of value to other people? So that's a little bit of my trajectory into the you know course of getting into search and rescue and mountain rescue. A little bit different than the the positive side, but I would say, you know, I've I've found a lot of value in doing it, and uh, you know, hopefully can help other people not have to face the similar kind of process that I went through, which was just feeling helpless. And I recognize that other people will likely feel helpless, but perhaps me being there can at least be a, a conduit for what they would like to be able to do, you know, and then maybe they'll choose to join as well. Yeah, absolutely. That grassroots effort and coming from, you know, a place of really understanding not only the people in those situations, but the people that are impacted by the situations where mountain rescue is needed. Absolutely understand there, Nick. And thank you for sharing. You mentioned something about how you would describe your different platoon members, how they're innovative, right? And you also mentioned that there are some skills that you might have that would translate to mountain rescue. Do you think that, or do you find any types of similarities between the people that you worked with when you were a platoon leader and that you work with now for the Seattle Mountain Rescue? It's 100% around the can-do attitude. I, I think with climbers, every problem is just begging for a solution. <laughs> and you know, you you pose a challenge to a bunch of climbers, and they're immediately thinking about how they can overcome whatever that is or find a way around it. Our organization actually recently acquired a facility that we wanted to turn into our um, headquarters, for lack of a better term, for the group, so that we had a place to park our vehicles and store our equipment. 
we've been incorporated for decades. We're actually one of, if not the oldest, organized mountain rescue groups in the country. And mountain rescue kind of started in Colorado and Washington, for lack of a better set of places, and Oregon as well. And so for you know more than 75 years, we've not had a home to put all our stuff. And so we were looking to acquire a facility. And of course, you know, a budgets notwithstanding, you know, we ended up kind of settling <laughs> on one that was was pretty banged up. It had a hole in the roof and most of it needed to be rebuilt. And uh, looking at it, you know, you would think there's no way like how, you know, it's going to take a lot of money to fix this to a usable state. And of course, most of the team saw it just as an opportunity. They saw we've got the skills in some ways within this organization to rebuild this thing, doing most all of the work ourselves and just finding ways to raise funds and have capital campaigns and talk to the community about what we're trying to do and week after week going and working on this facility to get it to a point where you know we could actually cut the ribbon and open it up and store all of our vehicle uh, and equipment in there and again it's i think just back to the can do attitude of climbers you pose a challenge and they'll find a solution for it i love that i think Looking at problems as an opportunity instead of a negative is something that we can all learn and uh, try to apply to any challenges that we face in our life. With the vehicles in mind and all of these wonderful can-do people, what sort of missions do you and the Seattle Mountain Rescue accomplish? It's really everything you could probably think of. On the simplest form, you might have somebody who goes out in Pacific Northwest. It gets dark here fairly early in the winter. And sometimes people forget that by 4.30, it's pretty dark and maybe it's overcast and the moon is not out and you can't see anything. And they've gone on a day hike and realized they can't find their way back down to the car. And it could only be a couple miles away. So we get called for things like that, where we just literally bring a headlamp to people. But, you know, I don't want to make it sound trivial because if they ended up overnighting out there, it could start to rain, it could be quite cold, and it could really turn into a hypothermia situation fairly quickly. So some of it's at that level. And then it goes all the way up to what you might think about. We do assist sometimes down on Mount Rainier. I've been down there for a couple missions. And there's also times we get helicoptered in uh, to the backcountry to either look for somebody or maybe to recover somebody who may have fallen on a long climb or a, a hike. We're part of the, the route through the Pacific Crest Trail. So, you know, not to say people get hurt often along that, but it, you know, it's a trail where there are some areas where people can fall. So it's pretty much end to end all the way from very benign. And honestly, we encourage people to call us and call 911 if, if they're at all worried about anything that, that could go wrong, because it's better to get us out there to help and bring a headlamp than to have somebody trying to come back down a trail that maybe drops off for a few hundred feet and, and they tumble down that. So pretty wide range of, of mission profiles. Do you have any specific examples you'd like to share of maybe something that comes to mind when you think of, oh, this is the reason why I joined the Seattle Mountain Rescue or, oh, this is a scenario where I was able to really have an impact on some people's lives? Yeah, I, I can talk to a few, maybe generalize. I try not to talk too much about very specific missions just because you never know who's listening or sure. it could kind of 
cut a little bit deep to somebody if, if they were had heard you know about it and they're like, oh, that was somebody that I knew or that happened to me. In fact, we try also really hard not to shame anybody into anything. I think accidents do happen and want to be very careful about how we talk about some of the missions that we do go on. That being said, I would say there's not a year that goes by that I've been on the team where I either am not on a mission where it has a very direct impact. And I think, wow, like we just changed the course or we were able to bring this individual home to their loved ones. And, you know, that it likely would not have been a positive or happy ending if intervention through, you know, my team or other search and rescue teams or mountain rescue teams hadn't intervened to assist. You know, sometimes that's as simple as, you know, bringing somebody back that's been pretty banged up. And in other cases, it's also, you know, after somebody maybe has had a fall and then unfortunately maybe are deceased, you know, being able to bring the the individual home to the family, I, I think it means a tremendous amount to the family, friends and loved ones. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about maybe some of the kind of mission profiles that we've had. And, you know, I can talk about a couple of ones that, you know, maybe not very specific, but kind of allude to some some sequence of events and, you know, highlight maybe how how that resonates with me and why I feel like the the pride for the organization and for the groups that are out there doing what they do. Yeah, I guess, you know, a couple come to mind, maybe generalized, you know, there's been some times we've had couple individuals in, in one case where one individual did kind of tumble down uh, a, a pretty steep slope, but then it ended up dropping off a few hundred feet. And luckily that, I think first person maybe landed on some snow that was down below, but they were still pretty banged up. I mean, it was a large enough fall that was quite bad. Um, and the other individual kind of scampered down to figure out what was going on and also lost footing, didn't realize that how steep of a, you know, embankment that led to a cliff was. And and that individual impacted on the ground, also alive, but really banged up. You know, the time it takes us to get out there isn't trivial either. You know, from the time that somebody is able to make a call, in this case, there was somebody who had kind of heard things in the distance, if I remember right, and, you know, went to investigate. And I think either used a cell phone or an inReach or a spot satellite device to be able to communicate back. But you have to think that that then has to go through an organized center, depending on how the communication goes, whether it's through 911 or through like Garmin. And, and whatnot. And that has to then make its way to the local authorities. In most cases, it's kind of the sheriff's department that manages that within a lot of the states. And so here we have a county sheriff and, and within that organization, there's a, a search and rescue coordinator who's a deputy. And then that individual has to alert the teams that are necessary or that could be beneficial for that accident. And that all sounds like it should take an hour, but actually that goes very quickly. But then we have the time where everybody has to hop in their car, sometimes even, you know, get out of work meetings and ask if they can go do something that might be potentially life-saving and then hop in their car, make sure they've got all the equipment and then drive where they need to go. And that's what really does take the most time followed by getting to where the accident has happened. So in this case, a number of people maybe hop in the car, drive all the way out there, and and then we hike in, make an assessment of what's going on, try to build a command structure, communicate things back. And sometimes, much like this case, like, you know, we bring a helicopter in and we indicate that, look, you know, this is bad enough where it's not going to be, we can definitely bring the person or people out on the ground, uh, but it's going to take a number of hours to, to carry them out. Sometimes that's on snow. Sometimes we do that on skis. 
Sometimes we, we have some uh, devices that kind of roll along on the ground uh, that's uh, like a, what we call a litter with a wheel underneath it, and that can help speed things up a little bit. But at the end of the day, you know, that does take a bit of time. So sometimes we'll get a helicopter extract. Some of the people might be able to go out. In this case, we, if I remember right, had a doctor that was on our team that was out there, and that individual went with them up in the helicopter and got them out to one of the local trauma centers. So... You know, I think that's a a great example of no doubt this was not going to be a positive outcome unless some form of intervention happened where people, you know, could come in with additional resources, equipment, and then, you know, help affect a positive outcome. Absolutely. And Nick, as, as you mentioned, you know, these calls aren't really something that you can plan for, right? They come up, you might be in a work meeting, you might have a birthday party or whatever have you. And so how do you go about that decision-making process, adjusting your life to help other people and have an impact there? I think a little bit of it starts with just the way our team is structured. So we're pretty careful about when people apply to our team, we have a set of criteria that we look for. We really you know, want to make sure that the people that are on the team can support these types of rescues day and night in inclement weather that they've got the skill set that will help them be successful on the team. And then we'll train the people to make sure that then they have the skill set of actual rescue because most people don't come from a background where they've got those skills in place. And so we we really do look to make sure that our team has enough individuals that are capable of deploying that if we do get a call that we've got depth across the team and that we've got depth when we get out to something. So I mentioned we do have some doctors on the team and we have other folks that are in the medical profession. Not everybody is. And and we're very lucky to have some of those individuals who can help at that caliber. Uh, and then we have a number of other people that bring other skill sets to the table. So even for myself, I had had my EMT when I was in the military, but I don't have that anymore. I do have some wilderness first responder training. And and I also bring to the table, I think, some of the organizational skills that I learned in the military of running groups, uh, both like in the field and, and from a command base as well. So we want to make sure that the team has this depth across all the facets that are going to be necessary for a mission to be successful. And not that we have one or two people in some of these critical roles, but that we do really have a number that can that can be present should we put a call out. And then it's a little bit of a numbers game. If we put a call out, the initial element is we're just hoping that we get enough people that can go and do that mission. And as we start to learn more information, or if we're not seeing enough people that are responding to that mission, we'll kind of amp up the pressure within the team. And I wouldn't say guilt people into coming, but really kind of indicate that, hey, look, like this might be one of those missions that is why you joined the organization. And you might you know, be able to actually add some high level of value if you can come out. And so we recognize that this might be your anniversary or that you're in the middle of a work meeting, but if at all possible, you know, please have a conversation with whomever you're sharing time with right now and just let them know that you could be very helpful if you're able to you know, get out of that prior um, commitment. So I, I would say that in the end, those kind of wheels that we've put in motion to get us to be successful are, are very beneficial. And it's very uncommon that we get in a situation where we don't have the resources available. But should we kind of hit that point, or if we're starting to even worry that we do just need more people, it is a, a regional 
discipline. So we do have mountain rescue teams and search and rescue teams that are also in and with the adjacent counties that are close to us. So we're part of King County here in Washington state. So Seattle Mountain Rescue is in King County. And then a lot of the counties that are around us also have mountain rescue teams as well that we can leverage. So it's not uncommon that we work with and we see some of these same individuals, maybe they call us to go help in their county and you know, vice versa. Sometimes we have to call them. Nick, that's really, really impressive, especially considering, you know, as the chairman of the board for the Seattle Mountain Rescue, I'd imagine a lot of the organization and the numbers game from the process standpoint, does a lot of that fall on your shoulders? Yeah, I'll say it did a bit. Right now, I'm no longer the chairperson of the group. So I've I've done my my term and kind of handed that torch off. And again, I mentioned a little bit earlier, it is an all-volunteer organization, so we we don't have any paid staff at all. But we do have a, a very robust structure within the group, both as a nonprofit uh, organization as well as as a, a like an operational team. So we, you know, have individuals who have very specific roles that will make us successful in both of those facets. And it, at the end of the day, everything does kind of roll up to the chairperson, though I wouldn't want to take any of the credit for a lot of the things that do get done because the organization has been around for decades and it really does know how to function. Sure, we have initiatives that are taking place that we, we need to manage and we need to kind of carry ourselves forward. But we also have people that have been doing this for many, many years that maybe in roles such as we have a rescue chair role that's really in charge of just overseeing operations, maybe not on every single mission, but they're just they have the big picture lens for everything we need to do operationally, looking at how we've handled operations, you know, trying to improve with a best practice mindset and just making sure that we strive for excellence and can accomplish our mission, you know, when it comes to going and doing mountain rescue type operations. So does that person kind of report to the chair? Not exactly. I would probably hesitate to say that that's the case. I mean, I think the the chairperson can help set the direction and can facilitate and provide coaching and guidance to make sure that, you know, the organization is kind of moving in the right direction. And and then obviously there's knowledge across the organization as well that can fill a lot of that in and, and then bring it all to life. Is there one thing that you may have learned throughout your journey with the Seattle Mountain Rescue that you take with you in everyday life? Possibly that what might seem like a very difficult endeavor or a situation that really doesn't seem like it's going to go well can actually go well. So I think one of the things I've learned is that somebody could be missing for three, four days, maybe upwards of double that. And you start to really question, you know, is there a chance that this individual is still out there and surviving? And I think I've realized that, yes, you're always going to have some of those thoughts, but you still go out there. And there's been plenty of times where we've gone out there and brought somebody home and they've been okay. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's really about just the not giving up part. It's the, you know, keeping that positive mindset even when you feel that there are a number of things that are stacking up that would likely lead you to think the negative outcome is more likely than not. But then realizing that, you know what, we've seen situations like this before. We've seen people who've been hypothermic and what seems like without a pulse 
and they've been able to, you know, make a recovery once we've gotten them out or somebody that's been out there for days and we've gone out and been able to locate them and, and bring them home and they've got the rest of their life now. That's probably the single thing that I, I try to take away consistently is that, again, back to the find ways around the problem, think about what you have at your disposal and then do the absolute best you can until you have like something more where you, where you have a concrete outcome that that's presented itself. So it, I guess when there's ambiguity, keep looking to try to get through it. Sure. And it sort of all goes back to that can-do attitude that you've mentioned throughout this, Nick. If If you have that, you can do a lot of things. And there's one thing I was able to actually before we recorded this episode. I looked at the spark notes for Freedom of the Hills and I, I found this quote that really, really intrigued me and wanted to know your thoughts on it. So it is as follows. Mountaineering offers you a chance to learn about yourself by venturing beyond the confines of the modern world. Is that something that you can relate to? I think that is a pretty powerful quote. I probably need to go back. I don't know if that was in the the version of Freedom of the Hills that I had when I was quite young in, in grade school, <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to think it was, and maybe it did have an impact on me. In general, in our day-to-day, I think sometimes it's easy to get into the routine of what we do. And we maybe we get up, we go to work, and, and we maybe recreate after work if we're lucky enough or on the weekends. But I, I think there is there's a whole other world out there when you when you get a bit further from the trailhead or if you're a scuba diver if you go under the water and start to explore you you realize that there's more than we see kind of in our everyday and i think the mountains are amazing like that they present a lot of challenge they're obviously not always easy and they do throw some things at you and they let you see kind of who you are and I think if you work through that and if you, you know, go out enough, you'll you start to find that and it's not always just about standing at the top of the mountain. I think, you know, you were asking a little earlier about the times I've gone up on Rainier. And honestly, I for me, it, it's really not about getting up on the the summit all the time. It's really about, in that case, being on the glacier and, and really enjoying the topography and the scenery that we just don't see every day. And even if you drive down to Rainier, which I encourage everybody to go down there. It's an amazing national park. And you, from your car, can have a fantastic you know, series of hikes that get you out and about. And you'll see things that you probably haven't seen. And then you can go a little further and go all the way up to Camp Mir, get up on the glacier and, and do that in a matter of hours. I wouldn't recommend it for everybody unless you make sure you check the weather and have some of your equipment with you. But, you know, I think it's very accessible. And then for those that want to go up further into the upper mountain, yeah, all the way to the summit. But being able to kind of push yourself and explore and get out of the day to day, I think is really what it's all about. And so if if that quote was in the book when I was a young, young boy and uh, I don't remember it, it may be what kind of sparked my desire to get out there. But I think it's it's really everything in that in that book. It's all the techniques, the knowledge, the the tools, the equipment, the inspirational quotes that really drive exploration and people to go climb and do things that maybe haven't been done or that have been done, but you personally haven't done it. So you're exploring it for the first time, which I think is amazing and quite powerful. Okay, Nick. Well, hey, listen, I really, really appreciate the time today and 
Do you have any last advice that you might want to give to someone like myself who's never been climbing, never been mountaineering, so that I can avoid calling you if I uh, ever get stuck on a mountain? Yeah, the standard answer is uh, make sure that you have your 10 essentials and you bring what you would need to take care of yourself as much as you can. Make sure you bring your cell phone. It's amazing what that tool has done for being able to communicate back to the outside world and get help to people that otherwise may have had to deal with things on their own or people would have to go search for them after 24 hours of them not being back. We can get out there a lot quicker now. So 10 essentials bring your cell phone, and then let somebody know where you're going as well. On the off chance that the 10 essentials aren't enough or that your cell phone's not working adequately where you're at, make sure somebody knows where you went and that you've got a plan in place to say, hey, if I'm not back by this time, you know, please just give a call to 911. They don't care. They'll go out and you know take a look for me. Even just getting a bringing a headlamp out to you, you know, in the <laughs> when it's dark, that's we're there for it if we need to. Absolutely, Nick. Well, I'll try to keep those in mind if ever I get the chance to go to Rainier and and do some climbing there. Just wanted to say, Nick, I really, really appreciate the time and sharing some stories about Seattle Mountain Rescue and what makes you you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Tanya. I enjoyed it as well. 